So a few months back, I showed a, a, a story of a family, uh, the Moronis. We showed a video of them that was actually on the news, Kirk and Erica Moroni, and their story's quite amazing. Um, Erica has gone through some incredible challenges physically. Uh, they adopted a little boy named Brooks, um, and it's just been a wonderful... Anybody remember that story that I showed you if you were here? What a wonderful story that, that, uh, that they had. And so, and so recently, uh, this week actually, Erica came to my office and she knocked on the door. And uh, if you remember what was going on in Erica's life, she, she, they had found a tumor in her chest. And uh, they were, she was taking chemotherapy and all these different things to try to shrink the tumor so that they can go in and operate and take it out. And um, so she came to my office this week and knocked on the door, and I, and I said, hey, come on in. And so she said, I just got to share some, something with you. And, and I said, well, what's that? And so she began to say that, you know, I was, she went to the surgeon because she was getting really tired and worn out from all this chemotherapy, and she, she wanted to say, okay, we got to do something. Let's get this done. And uh, so the surgeon did a scan, and she scanned her, they scanned her chest, and they came back, and the surgeon said, well, it looks like there's nothing to operate on. I can't see the tumor. And Erica's telling me this this week. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? And she's standing in my office, and I can see this joy in her eyes, and I could just see this lightness in her spirit. And, it, of course, you know, I responded. I started to tear up, and I'm so excited for her and Kirk and for the little boy, Brooks. And uh, she just was beaming with joy. And I said, well, thank you for sharing that with me. And then she left the office and went down the hallway and kept knocking on doors <laughs> to people. Uh, I, later on that day, I overheard her in the hallway uh, say these words. I wrote them down in my journal. She said, this is the greatest news I've received in two and a half years. And, you know, you could see it. You could see it in her, in her eyes. She was almost like she was walking on air, you know. And I got to thinking about that because I was studying for this series. This is a brand new series called The Gospel. And, and what, it, what I realized is that, man, that's what good news does. Like, good news lifts your spirit. Good news lightens your step. Good news brings joy to your life. Good news makes you smile. Sometimes it makes you cry tears of joy. Have you ever, have you ever had really good news do that to you? I saw it in Erica's face. I saw it in her body. And if you see her in the hallway today, she's going to be floating. She's still floating <laughs> around the campus <laughs> because the good news is sustaining her. You know, that's what the gospel means. The gospel mean good, means good news. At its core, that's the translation, good news. And at its core, the gospel means it's the good news that you and I can be reconciled to God, that you and I do not have to pay for our sins, that you and I could experience grace and mercy, that you and I don't have to spend eternity apart from God because we've broken his laws. Isn't that good news? Do you agree with this? That, that when we put faith in Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven and we can spend eternity with God. We can go to heaven when we die. Anybody excited about going to heaven? <laughs> Anybody? Yeah, that's good news. That's good news. And at its core, that is what the good news is. It is, it is this idea that I can be with God forever. See, we all, the average person lives about 75 years now. And then, and then we, we go into eternity. And the good news says you can go into eternity with God. And that's wonderful. And I rejoice over that, and, I, and I, I think about heaven sometimes, and I just get, oh, I get filled with so much, you know, excitement for it, and I cannot wait for it uh, many times. But in this series, what I want to do is, is kind of look at the gospel and say, and ask this question, does the gospel provide good news for this life? Like, I'm excited about heaven, and you are too, if you have faith in Jesus, and it's a, we should be excited about it. It's very good news. But what about right now? 
What about, what about on this side of heaven? Does the gospel have anything to say for us today while we're trying to raise our children and work our jobs and pay our bills and take care of the house and run our errands and try to eat right and try to exercise and try to budget correctly? Like, right? Does, it, does the gospel give us any good news now? And the answer is yes. And that's really what this series is all about. I'm going to give you a takeaway. Each week I want to show you this statement. The gospel not only saves us, but it also solves us. It not only takes us to heaven when we die, but it also fixes the issues that we're going, going through right now. See, the, the reality is, is that you're screwed up, aren't you? I'm screwed up. And I'm willing to admit it, and I think that's what makes our church a little bit different from maybe the average church, is that I'm willing to stand up here and say, I am weird. There's things going on inside of me that, that are just not right. <laughs> Thought patterns, choices, behaviors, responses that are not like Jesus, and i got to work on some stuff, right? And so I am this type of person that says, how does the gospel not just take me to heaven when I die, but how does it also help me right now in this life? And oh, it does. See, you and I got all kinds of insecurities, fears, worries. We have unhealthy guilt. Some of us deal with depression and self-hatred. Some of us have, have developed bad habits on, on our pursuit of, of happiness, be it alcohol or drugs or pornography or something even more destructive than that. And does the gospel help us in any of those areas where we're just not doing so well? And the answer is absolutely yes. So I want to dive in today and talk about the first issue. See, I believe every single one of us struggle really struggle for acceptance and approval. In fact, in the way you're, in the notes, I wrote it this way. As humans, we all seek acceptance and avoid rejection. Isn't that true? In fact, doesn't this statement explain your entire middle school and high school experience? <laughs> Come on, think back with me. Come on. Doesn't this explain why you did your hair that, the way you did it? <laughs> why? <laughs> Why, why you used all that pimple medicine that you got, you know, scrubbed your face all the way you did. The makeup and the hair. Remember the hair? Oh, the hair. Right? Some of you were teenagers in the 80s. <laughs> this explains why you joined the clique that you joined, like the punk rock group or the preppy group or the smart group, right? You, like, fit in with them. Because we all love acceptance. And we all hate, hate, hate rejection. Not one of us wants to feel like we're not good enough, we don't fit in, we're awkward, we're abnormal, we're, you know, we're just, we don't make the cut. We, we, we despise that feeling, and we love when people accept us and approve us. We're acceptance magnets, and even if we're really honest, I think this statement will explain our 20s and our 30s and our 40s, and some of us are 50s and some of us are 60s, doesn't it? It's not just the middle school and high school years, because it's, it's the way God created us. Let me take that back. It's, it's what happened to us after the fall. I don't believe pre-fall Adam and Eve were, were, were wondering about their approval and, and running away or trying to protect themselves from rejection. But after the fall, this is the condition of the human soul. We love approval and we despise rejection. So most of us, if not all of us, we respond to this. We want acceptance and approval so bad and we hate rejection that we do something. And here's what we do. We create something called the false self. We create the false self. 
Now, if you did a quick Google search on the false self, man, you're going to get all kinds of weird stuff come up, okay? So, uh, but, so I want to clarify what I mean by the false self through the lens of C.S. Lewis, some John Eldridge, and some Brennan Manning. Those are some of my favorite authors. Um, uh, they talk about the false self this way. This is the way that they describe it. Check this out. The false self is an image we create of ourselves that will be accepted and liked by others. That's what it is. It's this version of ourself. It's you on steroids, okay? It's you supersized. It's, it's, a, it's a created version. It's the best version of you, and it's not true. It's a made-up version of you. And, and, and what we do is we create this image of ourselves so that we will never have to face rejection, the pain of rejection, and be approved by everyone we come in contact with. Listen to what Brennan Manning says in his book, Abba's Child, which is an incredible read if you get a chance, if you're, if you're a book reader. Listen to what he says in his, in his book, when, when the False Self Came About. He says, as the days passed, I realized, he was talking to a counselor at this point, I realized that I had not been able to feel anything since I was about eight years old. A traumatic experience at that time shut down my memory and the next, and, and, and the next nine years of my feelings for, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, he sh shut down my memory for the next nine years and my feelings for the next five decades. When I was eight, the imposter or the false self was born as a defense against pain. The imposter, the imposter whispered, Brennan, don't ever be your real self anymore because nobody likes you as you are. Invent a new self that everybody will admire and nobody well, no. So I became a good boy, polite, well-mannered, unobtrusive, and deferential. I studied hard, scored excellent grades, won a scholarship in high school, and was stalked every waking moment by the terror of abandonment and the sense that nobody was there for me. You see, he describes the false self as this, this image that we create that will get us approval and will help us avoid the pain of rejection. Now, I'm going to go through some of the most common versions of the false self, and I want you to kind of circle or, or kind of identify which one you've created, okay? Ready? This is kind of a fun exercise, because I know, I know what some of you do. You argue with the preacher in your mind. You're like, ah, I don't do that. I do that too. So we'll just kind of help you through this process here, okay? The first one is the attractive person. This is the person that just simply creates this image because we know our society values attractive people. So we're going to be as pretty as we can be, as handsome as we can be, as built as we can be, as healthy as we can be, the right skin color. And, and we put forth this version. These are, the, these are the ladies who can't go outside without makeup. They can't go outside without doing their hair. This is, this, the, there's a version that you must see so that you can approve of me. Now, guys do it too, okay? It's not just a ladies thing, okay? This is a false self. We, we must put on this image so that we can avoid the pain of rejection and get that approval that we so desperately long for. And then there's the powerful person. This is the person... That, that needs some type of achievement that they can point to and say, look at me, and look what I've done, and look what I'm in charge of, and look what I run, and look at how many people report to me, and I am powerful, and don't you approve? And in our world today, we go, yeah, yeah, wow, you're so powerful. Look at what you're in charge of, right? Then number three is the wealthy person. We know our culture values money, and so people simply say, if I get a lot of money, then people will admire me and respect me, and, 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 and you can build a very, very strong false self when you have have a lot of money. And then this one is the tough guy, the tough guy. This one I tried when I was in high school, but I wasn't very good at it um, because 
I was just too skinny. So I couldn't uh, be the tough guy. But, you know, this is one that guys, you know, most guys struggle with. You know, we go, I'm going to be tough. You know, I don't cry. You know, it's like we, we try to put forth that false image so that we can gain some type of respect, some type of affirmation, and, and, and we won't be rejected. Uh, this one is the talented guy. Next one is the talented person. Oh, man, I, I milked this one. This, this, this is the one I created for myself. Like all through middle school and high school and even after that, I noticed that if I could excel in the area of sports, that I could, I could get recognition and affirmation and approval. I could get my name in the paper. I could win awards. I could break some records. I could do this or I could do that. And so, man, I milked this one. This was my false self all the way through high school. Have you seen? Have you heard? Did you read about? It was the way I gained my acceptance and my approval. Then there's this one right here, the smart person. These are the people that go for the degrees and the education. And have you seen? And did you notice I'm a doctor? And did you notice I have my master's? And did you notice and I've read all the books, right? Then the next one is the crazy person. <laughs> uh, I did this one too. You know, I was that, I was that kid who, who would do the, 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 the outlandish thing so that people would go, whoa, he's so crazy. Did you hear what Danny did? Like, stupid stuff. Like, I remember I had some kids in the youth group, right? And I'm talking about your kids now. I, when I was a high school pastor, and, and they would, and I noticed, I, I could see it because I did it. I could see it right, and I knew what they were doing. They were doing the outlandish thing so that everybody would go, did you see what he just did? He just licked her shoe, the bottom of her shoe. Like, that stuff like that would happen. Like, dude, you just licked the bottom of her shoe. Why'd you do that? <laughs> It's like and the only thing that that kid was doing was just, just trying to get some type of affirmation and love and somebody stroke me and tell me I'm okay, right? And then this last one's the funny person, and this is just the person that's always got to crack the jokes, always got to be funny, it's a class clown, and it's just, just, there's others, there's the ladies' man, you know what I'm talking about, ladies, you know, right? The, the guy's always got the women, you know, his shirt's button, button, one, many, one button too many, and you're like, really? Dude, button that up, come on, what's up with, you know, like a gold chain or something, I don't understand that. Anyway, I, I do it my own way, I do it my own way, but there's, there's so many other versions, and all, all the false self is this, this image we portray or, or try to give people that will gain us approval and will help us avoid the pain of rejection. Now, this is a dangerous way to live our lives. There are so many problems with living from the false self or drawing life from the false self. Let me just go through a few. Number one, you have no peace in your life because you know it's a lie. You know that there's duplicity and it's a facade and it's, an, it's, it's false and it's fake and you're playing a game. So inside, internally, you're, you, you have no peace. There's no integrity. There's no wholeness inside of you. And you know what else is true about, the, about living from the false self? The people who are closest to you, they, they see the game. They know the game. They smell, they've sniffed it out. <laughs> they can see that you're one way with this person and another way with this person. You're a chameleon and you're trying to draw affirmation and strength or, or life from your accomplishments or your body or your face or your, or your PhDs or your degrees. They see it and they sniff it out. And so you lose respect with your wife and your kids and the people closest to you. You know what another problem is? You're never satisfied. The false self is never satisfied. It's a, it's a bottomless pit. It's a black hole. You, you, like, you can never affirm the false self enough. It always says more. Tell me more about me. Help me understand that I have value. Another problem with living from the false self is that you're frequently depressed. 
And here's why. Because there are times in my life and there are times in your life where people just fail to notice your false self. They fail to say something about it. They fail to stroke it. They fail to affirm it. They fail to say, wow, you're awesome. And all of a sudden now you're down in the pit. and You've got you've to recreate an even better image that people will notice and see and pay attention to so that you can be sure about yourself. Am I talking about you today? Come on. For some of you, it's the first time you've realized, perhaps, that why you get depressed on a regular basis. Because people stop stroking you. They stop noticing your false self. And so you, you kind of take a dive into depression. Another one is you, you constantly live in fear. The false self always lives in fear because what if somebody actually finds out the truth? That you're not that beautiful. What if somebody actually sees you without your makeup? Ah! Right? And so there's always this fear of, of people finding out the real you, the scared you, the fearful you, the, the, the one that worries over things, the one, that, the one that, that loses his or her temper. Like, what if people really find out? So there's always this, always this fear of, of, of being found out. Another huge problem with living from the false self is the inability to be by yourself. The inability to, to be in your room by yourself with no one else around. Because when you're by yourself, here, here's why you can't do this or you struggle to do this. It's because when you're by yourself, no one else is there to affirm you. You're left with the real you and you don't like the real you. And that's why you're putting forth this image. You're not okay with the real you. And so you don't even like to be alone. You've got to be on Facebook. You've got to be on Twitter. You've got to be out in the public. You've got to be here. You've got to be there. You've got to go. You've got to be around people so that they can stroke you and notice your false self. See that? But the last one I think of is the most, the most uh, damaging part of all this is that there's very little intimacy with God when you're living from the false self. Very little intimacy with God. Here's why. Because you know, you know, there's all this duplicity going on inside of you. You're living two ways. There's this image you project, and then there's the real you. How are you supposed to approach God like that and have any type of intimacy with God when you're coming at him with all of this duplicity? Like he sees right through it, and you know he sees right through it. So then you try to pray, and your prayers fall short, and you notice that you don't really have a prayer life, and you struggle to pray, and you struggle to read the scripture because you're playing a game, and you know God. God sees through it all. So you're like, man, this is just, this is just hard. It's hard. I can't, I can't play God. And you know you can't play God. So when it comes to intimacy with God, it's very little when you're living this from this false self. So, what, so here's the question today I want to try to solve. Does the gospel say anything about this? Does the gospel help us? What do we do? Is there any good news for us today when it comes to this issue of, of, of seeking acceptance and wanting to avoid the pain of rejection? Like, does the gospel help us? Oh, it does so much. What do we do? What do we do? Number one in your notes there, you first have to realize that God intends to dismantle the false self. He intends to tear it down. He intends to take it out. See, what's really going on with the false self is idolatry. What you're doing is creating this version of you, and then you're drawing life from that. You're, you, you've found a way to survive in this world. you found a way to make it through this world by projecting this false image of yourself, and then people notice it, and they stroke it, and you draw life from that. You know what that is? That's idolatry. That's what it is. It's having something greater than God in your life that you're drawing life from. And God sees that, and so he says, man, I cannot let my people commit idolatry, so I am going to systematically dismantle the false self in people's lives. There's a quote by Mark Twain that's so telling of all of us. Listen to what he said. I can live for two months on a good compliment. Really look at this now. I can live for two months 
on a good compliment. Here's the key word. Live. How are you living? Where are you drawing life from? How do you make it through your days? Is it from people stroking and noticing the false self? Is that how you get through your days? If it is, that's idolatry. And God will not allow that. He loves you too much. In Psalm 50, 51, verse 6, listen to what the psalmist said. Psalm 51, 6. Behold, he's talking to God. You delight in truth where? In the where? Inward being. God wants there to be wholeness inside the soul. He doesn't want there to be duplicity. He doesn't want there to be a false self and a real self going on. He, don't, he wants no games. He wants you to be who you really are. He desires truth in the inward being. So what is he going to do? He's going to thwart the false self. He's going to take it out. Listen to what John Eldridge said in his book, Wild at Heart. Because God is fiercely committed to you, he will systematically dismantle your false self. See, some of you think that he's fighting against you. He's fighting against you having that beautiful face or that beautiful body or, that, or those degrees or, the, or whatever it is. No, no, he's not fighting against you. He's fighting for you. He's taking away the very thing you're trying to get life from. Are you with me today? Say amen. That's a good statement right there. He's not fighting against you. He's fighting for you. He's dismantling the false self because he knows what you're going to do with it. He knows that you're going to draw life from it. Say, oh, look at me. Look at that. Look how important I am. Look how valuable I am. He will dismantle that in your life. He will, let, he will not allow you to have any idols. He's not fighting against you. He's fighting for you. He's fiercely committed to you. And so he's going to go about systematically dismantling your false self. This happened to me, guys. This happened to me. When I, when I first took over this church, I had all these hopes and dreams. The church was running about 2,000 people. Some of you were here for that. And I thought, man, this is going to be incredible, and I'm going to be a great pastor. I'm going to take this church to 2,000, to 3,000, 4,000, and so on. And I had all these dreams and hopes, and I was naive. Boy, was I naive. And I was going to draw my life. I was going to draw my value from how well the church grew when I took over for Pastor Jim. And boy, did God dismantle my false self. Because the church went from 2,000 to 900. And I had to go to God for life. Not what I could do, not my incredible leadership. Look at me, and have you seen, and I'm only 28, and oh my gosh. I was left with nothing, and I had to turn to God. What was God doing in my life? Well, he was doing a lot of things, but one of the things he was doing is he was dismantling my false self. I am not this church. I don't get my value from whether or not this church is doing well or not. That's a hard lesson to learn for pastors. I'm giving you a little insight into pastors. <laughs> but if you're a business person or a teacher, or if you run anything, it applies to you too. You don't get your life from whether or not that thing is doing well or bad. But the temptation is to go there for life, and God will systematically dismantle that in your life. So number one, we have to realize that God is going to do that. Number two, and here's where the hard work comes in, you have to radically define yourself as one loved by God. And this is the difficult work right here. You must radically define yourself as one loved by God or define yourself as one radically loved by God. What I mean is that you must see yourself as one who is the object of God's immense, immeasurable, all-consuming love. Like you have to see yourself as that person. Listen to 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. The apostle John says it this way. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. 
He's poured it out on us. He's given it to us generously that we should be called what? Children of God. Say it a little bit louder. Children of God. And he doesn't stop there. He doesn't say that's just your name or that's what God refers to you as. That's what he calls you. He says, and that is what we are. That is who you are. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you are a child of God. And God has lavished his love upon you. He has poured his love out upon you. You must radically define yourself as one beloved of God, as his child. In Brandon Manning's book, Abba's Child, he writes about a a guy named John Egan, who's just an ra- average guy, math teacher, lived 30 years, uh, serving, not, he lived more, longer than that, but he, he was a math teacher for 30 years, but he never led thousands of people to Christ, and he wasn't a significant name in Christianity at all or whatsoever, but he, he kept all these journals about his walk with God and his intimacy with God and his journey with God. And so someone found his journals, and they, they noticed that there was a treasure in these journals, that this man knew God. And one of the things that that uh, John Egan was told one day by one of his spiritual directors was this right here. He said, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. God's love for you and his choice for you constitute, here it is, your worth. Where's my worth come from? Does it come from my body? Am I the attractive person? Am I the powerful person? Am I the wealthy person? Am I the tough guy? Am I the talented person? No, 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 no. His choice of you constitutes your worth. Accept that and let it become the most important thing in your life. Wow. What's the most important thing in your life? It's probably the thing that you're drawing life from. Hmm, isn't that interesting? What's on, how do you know what the most important thing in your life is? What's on your mind most of the time? Where do you spend your time most of the time? Where do you spend your money most of the time, right? That's the most important thing in your life. The most important thing in my life and in your life must be that we are God's beloved child. We are the object of his immense radical love. And I say radical because I mean radical. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, this is what the Apostle Paul tells us. But God revealed or showed or demonstrated his great love for us by sending Christ, say it with me, to Die for us. While we were doing really good. Is that what it says? While we were knocking it out of the park. Sunday school, memorizing verses, walking old ladies across the street, paying our taxes, telling the truth. No, no, not so much. He died for us while we were stinking it up. Anybody stink it up? I mean, just anybody honest enough to say, I stink it up. I blow it. I break the law. I know the law, and I break the law. And even when I was breaking the law, this Jesus died for me. Not because I was lovable, or, or, or not because I was doing really good, or not because you were doing really well, but even in our sin, he died for us. His love is indiscriminate. I want you to look at this picture really quick, because it's a picture of love. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, he was nailed to a cross. He was whipped with a whip that had stones tied to the tips of the the leather, which is where all the cuts came from. He had a 
crown of thorns put on his head. He was mocked. He was punched in the face. He had his beard plucked out. They smacked him in the face. They hit him over the head with a stick. You want to know what love looks like? This is it right here. This is radical. This is over the top. I will die for you. That's how much I love you. Jesus said it himself. I know, I know, I know this is a hard picture to look at, but, but, so I'll take it off. But this is what Jesus said in John 15. He said it himself. Watch this. John 15, 13. There is no greater way I can demonstrate love for you than to lay my life down for my friends. This is it. You want to know what love is? I will allow myself to be crucified, put to death, beaten, so that you could be forgiven. That's love. Now, given those realities, you and I ought to be able to define ourselves as one radically loved by God. How does God feel about me? He died for me. Oh, my gosh. In John Eldridge's book, Wild at Heart, this is what John said we all must do. He said, we must ask God what he thinks of us. Instead of going to our image, instead of going to our accomplishments, instead of going to any other false you know, image we project, we must go to God and ask him what he thinks of us. And we must stay with that question until we have an answer. That's what you and I have to do. We have to go to God and say, what do you think of me with all my screw-ups, with all my sins, with all the times I've broken the law and all the times I've gotten off course? Like, what, what are your thoughts towards me? What do you say about me? And you got to stay with that question until you hear Abba Father say, for love of you, I sent my son to this earth to have nails driven through his hands, to be beaten, to be mocked, to be spit upon, to be beaten with a, a cord, with stones tied to the end. For love of you, that's what I did. Oh. You stay there until you know in the depths of your soul that you are radically loved by God. And then what happens? What do you do after you do that? Or what happens after you do that? Something beautiful. The false self dies. The false self becomes unnecessary. There's no need. Right? You don't need to be the attractive person anymore. You don't need to be the crazy person anymore. You can stop. Your value is secured. You don't need to be the intelligent person. You can quit. You can quit. If you want to get your degrees, that's fine. But now you're doing it for a different reason. You don't need to be the accomplished person anymore. No, 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 you don't have to. You don't have to be the, the fit person, the healthy person, the one, you know, you know what I'm talking about. You don't have to be that person because you are radically loved by God. Now, if you want to be fit, that's fine. That's good. There's, a, there's benefits to it. But now you have a different purpose and a different reason and a different motive behind it. See, the false self drops off. Like, a, like, like, like when we were raising our children, uh, all three of them had pacifiers, right? And, and all three of them at some point had to give up the pacifier, Right? And it was, a tough, it was a tough transition. Some of you remember raising kids. And, 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 and just a little secret for those of you who will raise kids, and this, I learned this from my wife, you, you snip the tip of the pacifier off with the scissors. That's free right there. See that? You come to church, you learn stuff. And then the, and the, and then, and then the baby doesn't like it, and, and he gets rid of it. But it's, this is what happens. This is what happens. You, 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 you stop needing the pacifier. It's like, ah. 
all the striving drops away. You, all, the, all the spiritual cosmetics, all the, all the stuff that you, that you are desperately needing for life, it falls away. Why? Because you have, the, you have the answer to the question in your soul. And you have stayed with that question until you heard Abba Father say, you are radically loved by me. That's powerful. In Brendan Manning's book, Ragamuffin Gospel, which I, I encourage everyone to try to grab and read, he describes the good news this way. He says, the good news means we can stop lying to ourselves. The sweet sound of amazing grace saves us from the necessity of self-deception. God not only loves me as I am, but also knows me as I am. Because of this, I don't need any spiritual cosmetics to make myself presentable to him, and I would add to others. I accept ownership of my poverty and powerlessness and neediness. That's the good news. And of course, I can't preach a sermon without some C.S. Lewis, so <laughs> this passage shaped my understanding of what God wants to do in my life and in yours. Listen to these incredible words from his chapter on pride. He wants you to know him, wants to give you himself. That's what God wants to do. And he, are, and he and you are two things of such a kind that if you really get into any kind of touch with him, you will, in fact, become humble, delightedly humble, feeling the infinite relief of having for once got rid of all the silly nonsense about your own dignity, which has gotten you, which has made you restless and unhappy all your life. He is trying to make you humble in order to make this moment possible, trying to take a lot of the silly, ugly, fancy dress off in which we've all got ourselves up and strutting about like the little idiots we are. He just knows humans. I wish I had gone a bit further with humility myself, and if I had, I could probably tell you more about the relief, the relief and comfort. Powerful words. I could have probably told you a little bit more about the relief and comfort of taking off or taking the fancy dress off, getting rid of the false self with all its look at me and aren't I a good boy and all of its posing and posturing. Watch this. To get even near it, even for a moment, is like a drink of cold water to a man in a desert. That's the good news on this side of heaven. That you and I can drop the false self when we get near to God, when we hear him say, you are my beloved daughter, you are my beloved son, and all the striving falls off. I remember when I first received Christ, I had, I had duplicity beyond duplicity, and I was one way with my friends and one way with my mom. I had, to have, I had an image with her and an image with my friends. And I remember when I put my faith in Christ at the age of 17, uh, I felt like I could come clean because Abba Father said to me, I've seen it all, Danny, and I love you. And I remember there was this one particular night that we did something really bad, and um, it was, there was a guy that lived in town that, that was, uh, had a reputation for doing some pretty bad things to boys, and uh, nobody liked him. And so my buddy says, hey, why don't we, uh, why don't we drive past, he had a baseball card shop, uh, like a, a store shop. He says, why don't we just drive by and just throw bricks through his window? I was like, man, that's awesome. He deserves it. This is before I was a Christian. So we used my car. We drove up. We did a drive-by brick shooting. 
put the car in park, popped out, threw the bricks, like total glass frontage for the store. It was, it was crazy. Broad daylight. We jumped back in the car, speed out of there. Now, after I did that, I thought, okay, like somebody saw my license plate. It's just a matter of time before the police knock on the door. Mrs. Anderson, your son, you know, it's his license plate, yada, 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 yada. And I'm getting locked up and I'm going to jail. So I had that, that guilt hovering over me. And then when I got saved, I was like, I can be me. I can shed the false self. So I, I actually went to my mom and I confessed to her what I did. And it, of course, it broke her heart. But I, I, I couldn't even believe that I would be willing to tell her that story. And the only reason I could is because I knew God had communicated to me that I've seen everything you've ever done and I still love you. And I was free. I could stop pretending. I came clean. That's the good news of the gospel. You can be you. And what is you? You are a child of God. Now, in this next moment, our team's going to lead us in a song about a love, the love of God. Will you, will you allow yourself to have a moment with God and pretend like nobody else is here? And during this song, allow God to speak to your heart and say, you are my beloved child. And then I'll come back up and close us. The word incarnation is a word that theologians use to describe God becoming a man. That Jesus would enter this world, that God would take the form of a man. When you ask the question, why? Why? Why did God become a man? Here's what it comes down to in John chapter 1, verse 12. This is what we find. But to all who believed in him and accepted him, the God who became a man, he gave them the right to become children of God. Like when you sum it all up, when you, when you scrub it all down, why did Jesus come to this earth? Why, did, why the incarnation? Why did God become a man? It's so that you and I could become children of God. Now how do you become a child of God? You have to believe in him and accept or receive him. How do you do that? You come to church? No. Be a good person? No. Get baptized? No. There are some churches who tell you that's how you do it. It's not true. Don't believe it. Otherwise, I'd sprinkle water over all of you <laughs> and get you all into heaven with a hose. Holy water. I'd try to baptize every one of you every Sunday. Get baptized. Get baptized. It's not baptism. Come on. It says right here. You believe and you receive by faith. You put your faith in Jesus Christ. You receive him as your savior. How do you do that? You reach out to him through prayer. You say, God, forgive me of my sins. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you're the savior. Make me your child. I did that in my backyard all by myself. Surely you could do it right here if God is leading you to. And if you'd like to become a child of God today by putting your faith in Christ, I'm gonna ask you to close your eyes and bow your head. I'd ask everybody to do that. Just pray. If you've already put your faith in Christ, pray for those who are about to do it. If you feel led to become a child of God today, say this to God right now. Express your faith to him. Say, dear Jesus, I believe you're the Savior. I believe you revealed your love for me. 
by dying on the cross. And right now I put my faith in you. I trust you for the forgiveness of my sins. I turn from my life of selfishness and sin towards you for grace. Help me from this day forward with your strength to honor you with my life. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And everybody said, amen. If you put your faith in Christ today, just now, our church would like to put a Bible in your hands because we believe with all of our heart that sermons are really cool, sermons are great, you can learn some stuff and be challenged, but the way you're really going to grow in your faith is if you begin reading the scriptures every single day on your own, seeking God, seeking to understand His will, and we believe that as you seek Him through the Word, He's going to begin to speak to you and guide you and instruct you and open your eyes to who He is and what His will is for your life. So there's table back, tables back here to my right and to my left. If you just prayed to receive Christ today or if you prayed to receive Christ last week, please go back there and tell them and they'll put one of these Bibles in your hands. Can we give God glory today? Awesome, awesome. And for the rest of us as we leave, oh, here's the thing, here's the thing, here's the thing. Watch this, watch this, ready? As soon as you walk out these doors, you're going to be confronted with your false self again. She's still there. He's still there. You better work on your biceps this afternoon. You better work on your face this afternoon. You better go get, you better study this afternoon because you need to because that's where your life comes from, right? Listen, listen, as soon as that false self crawls back up in and starts talking to you, you say, shut up, shut up. I am one radically loved by God. You shut up, right? You have to do that. You have to do that. This, just because you had a moment today with Jesus doesn't mean it's going to work for you tomorrow. This is a journey. This is a walk. And every day you've got to fight this battle, okay? So that's the last thing I'll say. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. The gospel not only saves us, but it also solves us. Our, our issues with insecurities, our issues of where do we find our worth, you, you speak to that. There's good news about that. We are loved by you. You have, you have radically lavished your love upon us by making us your children. And that is what we are. Thank you so much for answering the questions of our soul. It is, it is good news. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And next week, you're not going to want to miss it. Bring a friend. Bring a friend. And remember, remember, I may not be here. I may not be here. But that's okay, okay? God bless you. We'll see you next week.